Over the past couple of days, I've maintained that we have reasons of at least four different kinds for caring about the fate of future generations. Reasons of love, reasons of interest, reasons of value, and reasons of reciprocity. All these reasons depend, in one way or another, on our existing values and attachments and on our associated disposition to preserve and sustain the things that we value. Without these values and attachments and our associated conservative disposition, the reasons I've enumerated would not apply to us in the same way. It may not be evident that the conservative disposition has a role to play with respect to all four of the categories I've mentioned. I first discussed the significance of this disposition yesterday when introducing reasons of value, and its role may seem clearest in that case. Reasons of value are reasons to care about the fate of future generations because the survival of so much that we value depends on it. If we had no disposition to sustain our values, then reasons of value would not apply to us. Indeed, if we had no disposition to sustain our values, then, as I suggested yesterday, we would scarcely have values at all. So reasons of value depend on our conservative disposition. But the same disposition also has a role to play with respect to reasons of the other three types. This is easiest to say in the, see in the case of reasons of love. Our love of humanity, which includes a desire that future generations of human beings should survive into the future, just is, in part, a manifestation of the conservative disposition with respect to humanity itself. And if we had no love of humanity, then reasons of love would not apply to us. So like reasons of value, these reasons also depend on the conservative disposition. And since both reasons of interest and reasons of reciprocity depend on the love of humanity, they too implicate the same disposition. The idea that our reasons for caring about the fate of future generations depend on an essentially conservative disposition may seem surprising. In this lecture, I want to examine the role of the conservative disposition further with the aim of illuminating three different topics. The first topic, with which I'll begin and to which I'll return at the end of the lecture, is the contrast between this understanding of our concern for future generations and the alternative understanding that's suggested by the beneficence-based approach to population ethics. The second topic is the conservative disposition itself, what exactly it consists in, how it is best understood, and how it is distinguished from other forms of conservatism. The final topic is how to situate the conservative disposition so understood in the context of the more general relations between our valuing attitudes and our attitudes toward time. I'll consider these three topics in order. One lesson of the argument I've been developing is that, with respect to value at least, there's a sense in which the present depends on the future. Without confidence in the survival of humanity into the future, our ability to find value in our activities here and now would be eroded. The most obvious source of resistance to this idea lies in the fact that most of us are not aware of attaching anything like this kind of value or importance to the survival of future generations. Most of the time, we don't think much about the question of humanity's survival one way or the other. We're far more preoccupied with the activities we're engaged in here and now, with the struggles of daily existence, and with the values we hope to realize in our own lives. 
The suggestion that despite this, we care so much about the survival of humanity that our ability to find value in our daily lives depends on our confidence that human beings will survive may seem mysterious or incredible. The role of the conservative disposition in giving us reasons to concern ourselves with the fate of future generations helps to dispel the mystery. Although, as I've maintained, our ability to find value in our present activities depends on assumptions we make about the future, it's also true that our evaluative attitudes toward the future depend, via our conservative disposition, on the values we affirm in the present. Our reasons for concerning ourselves with humanity's survival in the future are rooted in our present-day love of humanity and our existing attachments to all of the many things we now value that consist in or depend on forms of human activity. And it's because we care about humanity's survival in the future that the prospect of its extinction would compromise our capacity to find value in our activities here and now. This means that there's a virtuous circle that ties together our attitudes toward time and value now and in the future. The values that we now accept give us strong reasons to care about the future of humanity, and in fact we do care about it, so much so that the prospect of human extinction would compromise our ability to find value in our present activities. The idea that our concern for future generations and the reasons for that concern are grounded in a fundamentally conservative disposition gives rise to a number of questions. As I've said, it raises questions about the relevant kind of conservatism and about the unity of our diverse attitudes toward time and value. But before addressing those questions, I want to contrast this way of understanding the source of our concern about humanity's future with an alternative understanding that's suggested by the beneficence-based approach to future generations. One naive but natural thought is that a concern for future generations is a purely forward-looking attitude, and that conservatism is a purely backward-looking disposition, so that either the two have nothing to do with one another, or else there's a conflict between them. Conservatives, it may seem, want to preserve the status quo, whereas those who take seriously our responsibilities toward future generations want to change or reorient it. According to the view I've been setting out, however, a concern for the future of humanity flows naturally from a conservative concern for the things that we value now. It's our very attachment to the status quo that propels our concerns into the future. Without such attachments, it's not clear how much reason we would have to care about humanity's survival. Things look very different from the perspective of the beneficence-based literature on future generations. The primary focus of that literature is on questions of population ethics, and the standard method that's used to investigate those questions is to describe alternative worlds or alternative states of a particular world whose populations differ from one another in their size, composition, and or levels of well-being. The hope is that by collecting our judgments about such cases, we can arrive at a satisfactory population axiology, a principle or standard that would allow us to determine the relative value of total states of the world, even when their populations differ in one or more of the respects I mentioned. Such an axiology would in turn supply the basis for a principle of beneficence, which would spell out, either by itself or in conjunction with some other principles, our responsibilities for promoting the best population outcomes. There's no consensus among those who hope to find a satisfactory population axiology about which one is the best candidate. 
But even if there were such a consensus, what claim is the preferred axiology supposed to have on our motives? Why is it thought either that we do or that we should care which population outcomes are judged superior by the lights of this or that axiological principle? The answers to these questions are not obvious, but suppose we made the following assumptions. Suppose we assume that the most fundamental objective interest all people have is in achieving the highest possible levels of personal welfare or well-being for themselves. And suppose we also assume that insofar as one is beneficently inclined, one will care equally about the capacity of all people, including all future people, to satisfy this fundamental interest. Having made these assumptions, we might then conclude that this same beneficent concern underlies and confers authority on our intuitive reactions to the hypothetical choices among alternative populations that are supposed to serve as axiological test cases. And we might also conclude that this concern supplies us both with compelling normative reasons and with potentially powerful motives for seeking to achieve optimal population outcomes. But this way of thinking about the project of population axiology gives rise to additional questions. How strong and how pervasive is our equal concern for the welfare of all future people? What reason is there to believe that this concern has sufficiently determinate implications to support a coherent and complete population axiology? And what's the relation between this welfarist concern for future people and the rest of our values? In asking about other values, I don't mean to be suggesting that those values override or defeat our concern for the future. My suspicion is not that the proposed rationale for population axiology overestimates the extent of our concern for our successors, but rather that it underestimates and misrepresents our concern. It underestimates it because it neglects the variety of reasons we have for concerning ourselves with the fate of future generations. And it misrepresents it because what those reasons support is not a generic concern for the welfare interests of future people, but rather a more specific desire, rooted in the values we affirm in our daily lives, that the chain of generations should be extended into the indefinite future and that our successors should be able to live under under conditions conducive to their flourishing. So there's a contrast, then, between two different ways of thinking about future generations. The beneficence-based approach, at least when interpreted along the lines I've suggested, begins from a generalized concern for the welfare interests of all future people. This concern helps to rationalize the intellectual project of population axiology and provides the basis for an authoritative account of our moral responsibilities to future generations. According to the alternative perspective that I've been defending in these lectures, by contrast, we have a variety of reasons, all rooted in our existing attachments to humanity and to valued forms of human activity and endeavor to care about the capacity of future generations to survive and to flourish. From this perspective, it's a mistake to think that our reasons for caring about the fate of future generations are hostage to our ability to construct a satisfactory population axiology, a complete theory of the relative goodness of total states of the world. The contrast between these two views is both normative and motivational. Normatively, there is on the one side a moral imperative to implement a general principle of beneficence. On the other side, there is a set of compelling reasons, whether moral or non-moral, to secure the ability of our successors to survive under conditions conducive to their flourishing. 
Motivationally, there is on the one side a generalized concern for the welfare interests of all people, including all future people. On the other side, there's a conservative disposition to sustain the humanity we love and the existing values we now cherish. It will already be clear that I find the second perspective second perspective, more persuasive, both normatively and motivationally. As a normative matter, I find the reasons that it highlights for concerning ourselves with the fate of future generations more compelling than those suggested by the beneficence-based approach. And at the motivational level, the fact that it grounds our concern for future generations in a conservative disposition to sustain our existing attachments puts that concern on a more secure footing and integrates it into a unified stance we may take toward the diachronic dimension of our values. Having concentrated in the previous lectures primarily on the normative advantages of the second perspective, I want now to elaborate on these motivational points. I'll begin by trying to clarify the kind of conservative, kind of conservatism on which this perspective rests. The conservative disposition I've been discussing is not a form of political conservatism. It's a disposition to preserve or sustain the things that we value, and both the things that we value and the steps necessary to preserve them may conflict sharply with the policies and practices endorsed by political conservatives. One way to illuminate this kind of conservatism is to consider how it relates to the very similar form of conservatism defended by the late Jerry Cohen. In his wonderful essay defending what he calls small-c conservatism, Cohen advocates a bias in favor of existing value, by which he means that we should regret the destruction of particular valuable things as such, even when it would lead to their replacement by things of greater value. He thinks that, quote, everyone who is sane has this bias to some degree, and that it is, quote, rational and right that they should. For Cohen... The crucial distinction is between value in the abstract and the particular things that have value, or alternatively, between the value that things bear and the bearers of such value. The conservatism that he defends holds that particular things that have value take priority over value itself in at least two related senses. First, particular valuable things do not matter or count simply because of the amount of value that they bear or that resides in them. Second, we have at least some defeasible reason to preserve particular valuable things as such, even if by sacrificing them we could produce more value overall. The upshot is that particular valuable things command a kind of loyalty, They do not become dispensable the minute we could replace them with something of greater value. Conservatives of Cohen's sort will be defeasibly disposed to retain particular valuable things, even if it means foregoing the opportunity to make things in general as valuable as possible. Cohen, too, insists that the conservatism he defends is not political conservatism, or what he calls large-C conservatism as it is understood in the United Kingdom or the United States today. For one thing, what he favors is the conservation of intrinsic value, and since injustice and exploitation lack such value, there's no case for conserving them. To the extent that the policies endorsed by political conservatives are unjust, then, Cohen's form of conservatism provides no basis for defending them. Of course, something that's unjust may nevertheless be valuable in other respects, 
And although it would be possible to give justice lexical priority over the conservation of value, Cohen is not sure he's willing to go that far. Yet he indicates that he's much less willing than large C conservatives to tolerate unjust social arrangements for the sake of the other values they may realize or facilitate. In addition, Cohen argues that the economic market is hostile to conservatism in his sense, since it's always prepared to trade a valuable particular for something that has more value. So free market conservatism is deeply anti-conservative in Cohen's sense. Under capitalism, he says, the British Conservative Party turned into what he calls the anti-conservative market party. As he puts it in an especially memorable passage, which I can't resist quoting, for the sake of protecting and extending the powers of big wealth, oh, the powers of wealth, big C conservatives regularly sacrifice the small C conservatism that many of them genuinely cherish. They blather on about warm beer and sturdy spinsters cycling to church, and then they hand Walmart the keys to the kingdom. They are thereby in tune with the propensity of capitalism, which is to maximize a certain kind of value in sovereign disregard of the value of any things. Cohen contrasts his view not only with free market conservatism, but also with normative ethical theories like utilitarianism that favor the maximization of value. Quoting again, he says, To seek to maximize value is to see nothing wrong in the destruction of valuable things as long as there's no reduction in the total amount of value as a result. Unlike the conservative, the utilitarian is indifferent between adding to what we have now got at no cost something that has five units of value and adding something worth ten units of value at the expense of destroying something worth five. The utilitarian says, let us have as much value as possible, regardless of what happens as a result of that policy, to existing bearers of value. They do not matter as such. Conservatism sets itself against this maximizing attitude, according to which the things that possess value, by contrast with the value they possess, do not matter at all. That's the end of a long quote from Cohen. Now, one can imagine a utilitarian complaining that this is a distortion. Utilitarianism does not endorse the sacrifice of existing valuable things for the sake of value in the abstract. The sacrifices or trade-offs it favors will always involve exchanging some valuable things for other valuable things, either ones that already exist or ones that will come to exist in the future. When value is maximized, in other words, that value will always reside in particular bearers of value. Value is not, so to speak, free-floating. So it's misleading to represent utilitarianism as sacrificing particular valuable things for the sake of value itself. Cohen would presumably be unmoved by this complaint. If the utilitarian is willing to sacrifice a particular valuable thing whenever it can be replaced by another particular valuable thing with even slightly more value, then the original item is being valued solely in proportion to the value that it bears. And to say that is just to say that the utilitarian, unlike the conservative, does not value the bearers of value independently of the value that they bear. Yet Cohen concedes, in response to a point made by Michael Otsuka, that his form of conservatism does not exclude all forms of value maximization. 
Although it rules out comprehensive value maximization, it allows for local maximization, in which one valuable existing thing is sacrificed in order to save a greater number of equally valuable existing things, thus maximizing the quantity of what he calls preserved value. This naturally invites questions of two different kinds. The first is why a willingness to maximize the quantity of preserved value, unlike a willingness to maximize the quantity of value simpliciter, does not amount to giving the value that things have priority over the things themselves. The second question is whether, once the door is open to local value maximization, it's possible to block all forms of comprehensive value maximization. For example, would Cohen's conservatism rule out a comprehensive value-maximizing form of consequentialism that treated the maximization of preserved value as lexically prior to the maximization of newly created value? These are not questions I plan to pursue here. Instead, I want to make a different observation about the structure of Cohen's position. Cohen's conservatism appears to combine two things, an assignment of priority to the bearers of value over the value that they bear, and an assignment of priority to those particular bearers of value that already exist over those particular bearers of value that do not yet exist. Cohen doesn't always distinguish sharply between these two forms of priority. Without the second form, however, there's nothing distinctively conservative about his position. It's only the second form of priority that may be said to constitute a bias in favor of existing value. But although Cohen offers arguments that support the first form of priority, he never actually defends the second form, nor is it clear how he would want to. To see both of these points more clearly, consider the position of someone I'll call Jill, who is a painter. Jill is not, let us suppose, a utilitarian, or indeed a consequentialist of any sort, nor is she much disposed to engage in philosophical reflection about value. She simply wants to paint, which is to say she wants to create paintings, and of course she wants them to be good paintings. This means, in Cohen's terminology, that she wants to create particular valuable things. She certainly does not want to create value in the abstract. In saying this, I don't mean merely to be making the pedantic point that one can only paint paintings. There's no such thing as painting value in the abstract. My point instead is this. Even if Jill knew that by abandoning her own career as a painter, she could earn enough money to fully fund the careers of two painters even more talented than herself, she would decline. In this sense, she wants to create particular valuable paintings rather than to maximize the creation of artistic value, or even to maximize the creation of particular valuable paintings. Rather than becoming a painter, moreover, Jill could have devoted herself to the preservation of existing valuable things. She could, for example, have become an art conservator. But she's chosen instead to create new valuable things. And we may suppose she would have made the same choice even if she knew that she would only be able to paint N new paintings over the course of her career, while as a conservator she would have been able to preserve N plus one existing paintings. What are we to say about Jill? On the one hand, she respects the priority of particular valuable things over value in the abstract. 
Her aim is to create particular valuable paintings and not to maximize artistic value. On the other hand, she does not, in deciding how to live, give priority to those valuable things that already exist over those that do not yet exist. If she did, she would have chosen to become an art conservator rather than a painter. So it seems she is not a conservative in Cohen's sense, but neither does she make the mistake about value that he believes non-conservatives make. But if one can avoid that mistake without being a conservative, it follows that Cohen has given no argument for conservatism per se, nor has he given any argument for a bias in favor of existing value. He has simply given an argument for assigning particular valuable things, whether existing or future, priority over value in the abstract. And as Jill's example demonstrates, one need not be a conservative to do that. Cohen more or less concedes this point in response to an objection along the same lines that he attributes to Anka Gauche. He responds to Gauche as follows. If Gauche is right, my defense of what I call conservatism is not impeached, but that which I defend is now seen to be an instance of something more general, namely of the claims of particular valuable things over value in general. So, for example, we see the bias in valuing particular things over abstract value in the typical aspiration of the artist who is aiming not to produce a certain mass or type of value, but a particular valuable thing. In a post-Gauche reworking of the theme of this essay, the emphasis on particular valuable things that now exist would be relaxed. When Cohen says that his conservatism is not impeached by Gauche's point, but merely shown to be an instance of something more general, this seems misleading. What Gauche's point and Jill's example suggest is that there may be no more reason to conserve existing valuable things than there is to create new valuable things, so long as in each case the particular things are given priority over value in the abstract. In other words, Cohen's conservatism is not impeached only if it's taken to consist solely in asserting the claims of particular valuable things over value in the abstract and to include no priority at all for those particular things that already exist over those that do not yet exist. If that's what Cohen's position amounts to in the end, then it seems misleading to call it a form of conservatism, although it may nevertheless be correct. Perhaps the lesson to be drawn from Gauche's point and Jill's example is that there is no reason to give those particular things that already exist priority over those that do not. The conservative bias in favor of existing value is unjustified. I believe that this is too hasty and that implicit in Cohen's discussion is a genuine insight about the difference between our characteristic attitudes toward valuable things that already exist and our attitudes toward valuable things that do not yet exist. However, this insight is best appreciated if we focus not on Cohen's category of particular value as a type of value, or indeed on any other category of value, but rather on what it is for a person to value a a given thing. Although Cohen uses both of these locutions, the distinction between them plays no substantive role in his account, whereas I regard the distinction between something's having value and one's valuing it as significant. Valuing something, in my view, involves a complex syndrome of attitudes and dispositions, including a belief that the thing is valuable, 
a susceptibility to experience a variety of context-dependent emotions concerning the thing, and a disposition to treat considerations pertaining to the thing as providing one with reasons for action in relevant contexts. Here I'm using thing in a broad sense that encompasses any object of our valuing attitudes. It's possible to regard something as valuable, or in Cohen's terms, as possessing particular value, without actually valuing it oneself in this sense. Indeed, most of us regard many things as valuable that we ourselves do not value. Valuing something involves more than just believing that it's valuable. It involves a kind of attachment to, or investment in, or engagement with that thing. This sort of attachment or investment or engagement is constituted both by emotional vulnerability and by a disposition to see oneself as having reasons for action with respect to the valued item that one does not have with respect to other comparably valuable items of the same kind. If I value my relationship with you, for example, then I will typically be vulnerable to feelings of distress if you are harmed, and I will see myself as having reasons for acting in your behalf in relevant deliberative contexts that I do not have for acting in behalf of other equally valuable people. And so too, mutatis mutandis, if I value a personal project or a family heirloom. We're sometimes mistaken in valuing the particular things that we do because sometimes these things lack the value that we think they have. In such cases, we do not have the reasons for action that we take ourselves to have. But in the absence of radical skepticism about value, there's no reason to think that our valuing attitudes are systematically misguided or that we're never justified in valuing anything. And insofar as we are justified in valuing a particular thing, we're justified in thinking that we have distinctive reasons for action with regard to that thing. These are reasons that people who do not value the thing do not have, and they are over and above any reasons that we and others may have simply in virtue of the intrinsic value of the item. So, for example, if, my, if I value my friendship with you, then I'm justified in thinking I have reasons to act in your behalf that other people do not have and that I do not have with regard to people who are not my friends. And if I value an antique rug that has been in my family for generations, then I'm justified in thinking that I have reasons to care for it or preserve it that other people do not have and that I do not have with regard to other antique rugs. This does not mean that I have no reason to do anything at all in behalf of people who are not my friends, or indeed that I never have reasons to help preserve other antique rugs or other people's family heirlooms. It means only that by virtue of valuing particular valuable things, we have reasons for action that go beyond the reasons that we and others may have solely in virtue of the intrinsic value of those things. These points about the relation between valuing and reasons for action are relevant to Cohen's defense of conservatism because, in general, we cannot value things that do not exist and have never existed in the way we value existing things. Valuing involves attachment. Attachment requires acquaintance, and non-existence makes the relevant form of acquaintance impossible. So, for example, one cannot value the friendships one has not yet formed in the way that one values one's existing friendships. One cannot value the projects one will someday develop in the way one values the projects one already has. One cannot value the children one has not yet conceived in the way that one values one's existing children. 
nor can one now value the great works of art that artists will produce in the future in the way one values those great works that already exist. One can, of course, attach value to one's prospects and plans before they have borne fruit and to one's hopes and dreams before they have been fulfilled. But in these cases, the prospects and plans and hopes and dreams already exist. One cannot in the same way attach value to the plans one has not yet made or the dreams one does not yet have. If this point is correct, then it's possible to identify a conservative attitude, more or less along the lines suggested by Cohen's discussion, that goes beyond a temporally neutral assignment of priority to the bearers of value over the value that they bear. This form of conservatism includes, in addition, a bias in favor of certain particular bearers of value that already exist. The bias derives from the fact that we can form value-based attachments to existing things in a way that we cannot form such attachments to things that do not yet exist. And things that we value are sources of distinctive reasons for action and distinctive patterns of emotional engagement. The content of these reasons and the contours of these patterns of engagement will vary depending on the type of thing that's in question. But in most cases, the reasons will include reasons to care for and preserve the things that we value. And the emotions will include vulnerability to feelings of distress if those things are harmed or damaged or destroyed. Insofar as this sort of bias is built into our valuing attitudes, every valuer must to that extent possess the conservative disposition. This vindicates Cohen's assertion that everyone who is sane has something of this disposition. At the same time, it's important not to exaggerate or misinterpret the normative significance of this disposition. Although we have special reasons for action pertaining to items that we already value, these reasons will not always be the strongest reasons we have. In any given case, they may be outweighed by sufficiently strong reasons of other kinds. Furthermore, there will be many cases in which we can create new items of value without neglecting the reasons we have to care for the items we already value. That's how it was, or so we may suppose, with Jill, the painter. She did not need to neglect her reasons to care for items she already valued in order to devote her efforts to creating new works of value. So conservatism is not not incompatible with creativity. This is important because even if all sane people have something of the conservative disposition, all sane people also have something of the creative disposition. This disposition is not limited to artists or to others who are colloquially described as creative people. It reveals itself in the impulse to make, to build, to invent, to change, to improve, to reform, to renew, to innovate, and of course, to procreate. It reveals itself even in the impulse to act because each act is a novel intervention in the world. Each act contributes something new to the course of human history. In that sense, the conservative disposition to sustain and preserve the things that we value is itself a creative disposition. To be sure, there are times when all it requires of us is that we refrain from performing actions that would harm or destroy those things. But there are also times when we must take affirmative steps, often requiring great imagination and tenacity, if we're to succeed in sustaining and preserving the things that we value. After all, conservators are not people whose job is simply to do nothing. 
The conservative disposition and the creative disposition are not incompatible then, not only because there are cases in which one of them applies and the other doesn't, but also because there's a sense in which the conservative disposition, properly understood, is itself a creative disposition. This brings us back to the role of the conservative disposition in supporting our concern for the survival and flourishing of future generations. I've emphasized the extent to which our reasons to care about the fate of our successors are rooted in our value-based attachments to humanity and to the many different forms of human activity and endeavor that we cherish. Far from being a backward-looking impulse that competes with or inhibits a concern for the future of humanity, our conservative disposition to sustain and preserve the things that we value itself underwrites that concern. Nor does the fact that our concern for future generations depends on this conservative disposition mean that it's incompatible with our creative impulses. To see this, one has only to reflect on the creativity and imagination that will be required to overcome the challenges to human survival and secure the prospects of a decent future for our successors. Moreover, since human beings are an essentially creative species, whose history is a history of change, experimentation, and innovation, and who are always developing new modes of living and new dimensions of value, a concern to ensure the future of humanity is itself a concern to sustain the open-ended and unpredictable course of human creative activity. As applied to the future of humanity, in other words, the conservative disposition is a disposition to ensure that human creativity and innovation will continue to flourish. Despite the ways in which the conservative disposition supports rather than competes with a concern for the future, skeptics may deny that the disposition is rational. Insofar as it gives existing valuable things priority over valuable things that do not yet exist, it may be said to amount to an irrational form of status quo bias. But but although I'm sure there is such a thing as irrational status quo bias, I have a difficult time seeing that there's anything irrational about the conservative disposition as I've described it. That's because I have a difficult time seeing what the alternative to it might be. The conservative disposition reflects the fact that our value-based attachments can only be directed at what is or has been actual. We could not have a temporally neutral disposition to form attachments to things that do not yet exist in the same way that we do to existing things. What would it mean to be just as attached to our future friends or to the children we will one day have or to the great paintings that will someday be produced or the great novels that will someday be written as we are to our actual friends or children or to the great paintings and novels that have already been produced? When it comes to attachment, temporal neutrality is not an option. An alternative suggestion might be that attachment is always irrational we should strive to realize an ideal of detachment and to free ourselves as far as possible from all of our attachments. Whatever may be said for or against such an ideal of detachment, however, it does not support the idea that our bias toward existing attachments in particular is irrational. Instead, what's alleged to be irrational is attachment itself, rather than the temporal sensitivity of our disposition to form attachments. It's true that if all attachments are irrational, then it follows trivially that a temporally sensitive pattern of attachments is irrational. But if all attachments are irrational, then it also follows trivially that a temporally neutral pattern of attachments would be irrational. 
The ideal of detachment does not show that there's anything irrational about temporal sensitivity per se. In general, the interactions between our values and our attitudes toward time are complex, and we should be cautious about assuming that every manifestation of temporal bias in our valuing attitudes must be irrational. Indeed, to the extent that the very term bias suggests irrationality or lack of justification, its undiscriminating use to refer to all forms of temporal preference is unfortunate. Our values and desires are shaped by our self-understanding as temporally extended creatures and by our experience of temporality. We would not have the values we have if we did not understand the temporal dimension of our lives in the ways that we do. And the direction of influence also runs the other way. The values that we form serve in turn to shape our attitudes toward time. We would not have the temporal attitudes that we have if we did not have the values that we do. We need to try to understand these reciprocal influences and not to assume that every manifestation of temporal bias in our valuing attitudes is irrational. As with studies of rational judgment and decision-making in other areas, the trick is to navigate between the complacent assumption that our ordinary thinking must be in good order and the revisionist application of oversimplified models that lack any authority over our actual practices and tendencies of thought. I've tried to illustrate these broad themes by showing how a conservative disposition to sustain existing bearers of value, which some might take to involve a form of irrational status quo bias, is built into our valuing attitudes and cooperates rather than competes with a concern for the future. This in turn helps to explain why, in the case that is the special focus of these lectures, the conservative disposition strongly supports a concern for the survival of humanity and the flourishing of future generations. To state my view in a way that is only superficially paradoxical, our concern for the future of humanity and for the flourishing of future generations depends on a conservative disposition that applies directly only to presently existing and past bearers of value. In the next section of this talk, I want to develop these ideas just a bit further by considering the conservative disposition alongside other forms of temporal bias that we have been said to exhibit. This will enable us to see how a conservative concern for future generations fits within the broader context of the more general relations between our attitudes toward time and our attitudes toward value. So, you awake in your hospital bed. You're told by a nurse that either you underwent 10 hours of extremely painful surgery without anesthesia yesterday, after which you were given a drug to cause you to forget the experience, or else you will undergo an extremely painful operation lasting one hour today, after which you will be given a drug to cause you to forget the experience. Which would you prefer? Most of us would prefer to have undergone the longer operation yesterday than to be faced with the shorter operation today. Derek Parfit has deployed a well-known series of examples of this kind to argue that we display a bias toward the future in the following respects. We would prefer to have experienced pain of a given intensity and duration in the past than to experience it in the future. We would even prefer to have experienced a longer period of pain in the past than to experience a shorter period of pain in the future. And we would prefer that our lives contain more total hours of pain 
if that meant that less of it were still to come. Anthony Bruckner and John Martin Fisher have used an example parallel to one of Parfitt's to argue that with respect to pleasurable sensations, we have the reverse preferences. We would prefer to experience pleasure of a given intensity and duration in the future than to have experienced it in the past. We would even prefer to experience a shorter period of pleasure in the future than to have experienced a longer period in the past. And we would prefer our lives to contain fewer total, total hours of pleasure if that meant more of it were still to come. Taken together and setting aside for the moment various refinements and qualifications, these claims ascribe to us a general preference that our pains be in the past and our pleasures in the future. With respect to pleasure and pain, we are, so to speak, more solicitous of our futures than of our pasts. In that sense, we are biased toward the future. Parfit suggests that our bias toward the future is limited in two ways. First, it's not the only form of temporal bias that we exhibit. Most of us, he thinks, also exhibit a bias toward the near. We would prefer a smaller pleasure sooner to a larger pleasure later, and a larger pain later to a smaller pain sooner. Second, the bias toward the future applies only to attitudes that are directed toward our experiences at various times. Similarly, Bruckner and Fisher say that it does not apply to bad things that we do not experience. For example, they hold that it would not apply to a case in which you knew that, quote, either some friend of yours had betrayed you behind your back nine times in the past, or some friend will betray you behind your back once in the future. Here, in contrast to the examples involving the bad experience of pain, it's not true that most of us would prefer the larger number of betrayals as long as they were in the past. Parfit adds that, for simplicity, his examples focus not on experiences of all kinds, but solely on experiences of pleasure and pain. The phrase, for simplicity, suggests that, in his view, the bias toward the future may also apply to other kinds of experiences. It's not clear what other kinds of experiences he has in mind, but there are many experiences to which the bias toward the future does not seem to apply with comparable force, if at all. Many of the good and bad things in our lives have an experiential dimension, and yet we do not regard their value as exhausted by the associated experiences. I regard my friendships as valuable, and they do have an experiential dimension, yet I do not think that their value for me consists solely in my experience of them. If I did, I would think it just as valuable if an experience machine could provide me with qualitatively identical experiences in the absence of any actual friendship. Similarly, Jill regards her life as greatly enriched by creating good paintings, but she does not think that the value for her of creating the paintings consists solely in the experiences she has while doing so. What is important to her is that she actually creates the paintings, and not merely that she has certain states of mind while creating them. A corresponding point applies to many bad things. If someone I love dies, then what is bad is not my grief, but the person's death. If I know that my friend has betrayed me, or that someone has violated my rights, or that my life's work has turned out to be a failure, then the disvalue of those things for me consists in the fact that they've happened, and not solely in my experience of them. To be sure, it would be bad to have the experiences as of their happening, but it would be worse if, in addition, they really did happen. 
we may call goods and bads of this kind partly experiential. With partly experiential goods and bads, we don't have a general bias toward the future. Would you prefer to have painted five great paintings already or to paint one such painting in the future? Would you prefer knowingly but painlessly to have undergone five rights violations in the past or to undergo one such violation in the future? If our bias toward the future applied to these cases, we would prefer to paint one great painting in the future rather than to have painted five in the past and to have undergone five painless rights violations in the past rather than to undergo one in the future. But it's far from clear that most people would have these preferences. Many would have the reverse preferences. Parfit might agree. He says that, quote, he is, that he is, quote, discussing our attitude not to the fact that our lives contain certain kinds of events, but to our experience at other times of living through these events, end quote. This comment is open to different interpretations. On one interpretation, it implies that he's not making any claim about temporal bias in the case of partly experiential goods and bads. If that's right, then there's no inconsistency between Parfit's position and what I've said about such goods and bads. On another interpretation, however, it implies that the claim of temporal bias applies only to the experiential dimension of partly experiential goods and bads and not to their non-experiential dimensions. So, for example... The claim might be that our bias toward the future applies not to facts about the deaths of our loved ones, but only to our experience of their deaths, such as grief. Or similarly, the idea might be that the bias applies only to our experience of our friendships and not to the friendships themselves. Interpreted in this way, the claim is untenable. Partly experiential goods and bads cannot be decomposed into two elements, toward one of which we exhibit the temporal bias and toward the other of which we do not. If they could be so decomposed, then we might, for example, be expected to have the following combination of preferences. A preference to have a smaller number of our close friends die in the future rather than to have, a, rather than to have had a larger number die in the past, along with a preference to have experienced a larger number of episodes of grief about our friends' deaths in the past, rather than to experience a smaller number in the future. But it's not clear that such a combination of preferences is even coherent, and there's in any event no basis for attributing it, or others like it, to us. In the case of partly experiential goods and bads, our attitudes toward our experiences of these things are intimately bound up with our attitudes toward the facts or events of which they are experiences. That's why the bias toward the future does not, in general, apply to them. The fact that the bias does not apply to them does not entail either that we are temporally neutral with respect to all such goods and bads, or that we exhibit toward all of them some other temporal bias of the kind that interests Parfit. What temporal preferences we have, if any, may depend instead on context and on the nature of the specific goods and bads that are in question. The bias toward the future, meanwhile, applies most clearly to pleasure and pain, where these are understood as pure feelings or sensations with little or no cognitive content, rather than as ways of experiencing events or aspects of the world that have independent value or disvalue for us. Even if we suppose that grief can sometimes be physically painful, 
for example, I would much prefer to have my grief at the loss of my friends lie in the future rather than in the past. Beyond the case of pleasure and pain understood as pure sensations, it's not clear how far the bias toward the future extends. There's at least one other case in which we seem clearly to exhibit such a bias, however, and that's the case of personal non-existence. We're troubled by our future non-existence in a way that we're not troubled by our past non-existence. As Lucretius famously observed, our fear of death is not matched by any comparably strong dismay about the fact that we did not exist prior to our births. As with pain, we would prefer to have our non-existence in the past rather than in the future. And as with pleasure, we'd prefer to have our existence in the future rather than in the past. However, these assertions may need to be qualified in certain ways. It's true, of course, that many people fear death intensely, while nobody that I know of feels comparably strong dismay about their prenatal non-existence. But it may be too hasty to assert without qualification that we would prefer to have our non-existence in the past and our existence in the future. Suppose I were told that I could, per impossibile, trade the first 40 years of my past existence for an additional 40 years of future existence, during which time I would remain in good health and would retain my physical and mental powers, except that toward the end I'd be subject to the normal aging process. If I had an unrestricted preference for past non-existence over future non-existence, then I would gladly accept the trade. But since, in losing the first 40 years of my actual existence, I would lose much of the personal history that I value most dearly, including all of my relationships with people I met during those years, I would not accept the trade. I would not accept it even if I were assured that I would establish new relationships in the future that I would eventually come to value just as much as, or even more than, I now value the relationships I would be losing. And this shows that I do not have an unrestricted or unqualified preference for past non-existence over future non-existence. Other people might make different choices in the situation I've described, especially if, for example, they had formed weaker relationships in the first decades of their lives. But as long as there are some people who would refuse the trade, it follows that our general bias toward the future with respect to our own existence is not as unrestricted as it may have seemed. In particular, it can be limited by past attachments. Even if we fear death but remain indifferent to our actual prenatal non-existence, we might nevertheless prefer to retain our actual past existence and the attachments that came with it, rather than accept additional past non-existence in exchange for additional future existence. The picture that has begun to emerge suggests that our attitudes toward time and value form a complex network. We exhibit no global temporal neutrality, but neither do we exhibit a comprehensive bias toward either the past or the future. In part, we have a conservative disposition because it follows from the nature of attachment that valuable things that already exist are reason-giving for us in a way that future valuable things are not. Yet this disposition coexists with an equally pronounced creative disposition. We also display a bias toward the future with regard to our purely pleasurable sensations, But this bias does not apply to all of the good and bad things in our lives. 
And although we fear death intensely but remain generally indifferent to prenatal non-existence, we do not have an unrestricted or unqualified preference for past non-existence over future non-existence. It's evident that these preferences and dispositions interact with one another in a variety of ways. For example, the fact that our existing attachments are reason-giving for us in a way that our future attachments are not helps to explain why our preference for past non-existence over future non-existence is limited. Similarly, the reason-giving force of our existing attachments helps to explain why the bias toward the future that we exhibit with respect to our sensations of pleasure and pain does not extend to all the good and bad things in our lives. To provide a complete map of our attitudes toward time and value would be a substantial project, and one that I cannot undertake here, you'll be relieved to hear. But even without a complete map in hand, it may be helpful to situate questions about future generations in the context of this broader set of issues, and that's what I will attempt to do, albeit very briefly, by way of conclusion. In his discussion of our bias toward the future, Parfit highlights the question of whether the bias is irrational and whether rationality requires complete temporal neutrality. He stops short of explicitly endorsing this position, although he does say that the bias is bad for us and that, we, and that it would be better for us if we lacked it. I'm not convinced that he's right about that, although I won't explore my doubts in any detail here. Suffice it to say that I'm not convinced that he's taken adequate account of the effects that temporal neutralism, even if limited to pleasure and pain and existence and non-existence, would have on the rest of our values and attachments. And although I've argued that our bias toward the future is limited, I'm skeptical of the neutralist claim that rationality requires us to eliminate or overcome it entirely. I believe this is one of those cases in which, when confronted with the complexity of our actual thought, we should be wary of the prescriptive application of a simplified model of rationality that would classify any recalcitrant attitudes as being normatively deficient. There is, of course, a well-known parallel between the view that temporal neutrality is the default rational stance, departures from which stand in need of special justification, and the view that impartial beneficence is the default moral stance, departures from which stand in need of special justification. The first view treats temporal neutralism as presumptively authoritative and is suspicious of any tendency people may have to be more concerned about what happens at some times than at others. The second view treats an equal concern for the welfare of all people as the presumptively authoritative moral position and is suspicious of any tendency people may have to attach special value to their relationships with particular people or to be specially concerned about what happens to some people rather than to others. I reject both of these views. I'm comfortable with the thought that our temporal attitudes are complex and that we lack any single master attitude toward time, that we are not uniformly biased toward the past, uniformly biased toward the future, or uniformly neutral. I'm also comfortable with the thought that we have strong value-laden attachments to particular people and projects and relationships, and that these attachments are sources of differential reasons for action and differential forms of emotional vulnerability. This bears on the contrast that I mentioned toward the beginning of this lecture between two different ways of thinking about questions concerning future generations. 
As applied to those questions, the combination of temporal and moral neutralism leads more or less directly to the quest for a principle of beneficence that would solve the puzzles of population ethics. At first glance, such a principle might seem to be the perfect antidote to the kind of temporal parochialism that I discussed in Lecture 1. But as I've tried to make clear throughout these lectures, I'm convinced that this solution is illusory and that once one focuses on the rich variety of human values and attachments and on the complexity of our actual attitudes toward time, it begins to lose its charms. It's tempting to think that once that happens, our reasons for concerning ourselves with the fate of future generations simply drain away. The beneficence-based literature tacitly, though no doubt unwittingly, encourages this thought. In these lectures, however, I've tried to show that the reverse is true. Once we free ourselves from the thought that the basis for any concern about the future of humanity must lie in a principle of beneficence of some as yet unspecified sort, we can see that we have reasons of a number of different kinds, all rooted in our actual attachments as flesh-and-blood human beings for wanting future generations to survive and to flourish. Insofar as these reasons depend on our existing values and attachments and on our conservatism about value, they depart from moral and temporal neutralism. Yet it is to these very departures, rather than to any form of neutralist beneficence, that we must look in order to identify our strongest and deepest reasons for caring about the fate of our successors. Or so I have been trying to show." At the very least, I hope to have persuaded you that there is an alternative to thinking about problems of future generations in exclusively or primarily beneficence-based terms, or indeed in exclusively moral terms of any kind. If we broaden our horizons, we may find that we have even more reasons than we realize to worry about the fate of future generations. Thank you.